You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Bedian from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two radiant and sparkling and brilliantly fabulous partners, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hello. <laughs> how are you guys doing? We're good. Awesome. Has, um, how, how is the weather for both of you guys? Like the weather just broke here in Las Vegas. And so it went from being 110 to 83. I was just about to say, of, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. That's a big break from 100 it's a to 83. Huge, it's, it is a huge break. I mean, it's the better part of 20 to 30 degrees, depending on which part of town wow. you're in. And so wow. it's, I mean, in, in my, um, estimation, 83 is like practically Arctic after we've spent the whole summer at 110. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm in, yeah. I'm in semi long sleeves and a cardigan now when I have not worn anything other than sleeveless for a month. That's hilarious. Or longer. It has definitely, I would say it has, it has definitely cooled off. We've had some 80 eighties days. It's still in the, like in the afternoon, it's in the low nineties. But the mornings are nice and the evenings are nice. And it's it's so much. This was one of the hottest summers on record in Texas. We mm-hmm. we started getting into 100 degrees in mid-May. And that usually mm-hmm. doesn't start until the end of June. And so it's just, it, it's really taken a toll on all things theoretically green that are mostly brown. But coming, we're getting a little rain now. We, we've been in a huge drought too. So um, it's, it is definitely getting better. So it's broken in Nashville too. We're kind of in the 80s and it's breezy and the really bad humidity has kind of started to go away. But I'm really devastated because I have these two beautiful maple trees that I can look out from my kind of like my screened in porch. And they're really beautiful every year. And this year, for some reason, I started noticing the trees are just beginning to change. The leaves are just beginning to change. But I looked out and my beautiful red maple trees are brown and the leaves are just falling off. And I don't know why. I guess we just had more drought this summer than I thought. And I was just, I'm so bummed because they're so beautiful when they're in full bloom or full display or whatever. It's funny in Texas. I don't think I realized this until about five years ago, but like we actually do have a little bit of a change of color, but our change of color happens like in early December. It's funny funny because like early December, like you'll see like different, you'll see reds and yellows and things like that. And I, I can say that I did not notice this as a child growing up here. Um, but just there there's, when I drive to my house that I drive on kind of this country road and it's got pretty trees that are kind of over it and everything like that. And I think that's what helped me kind of come to this realization that, that that was happening. Interesting. Interesting. So I have a deeply controversial question to ask both of you. Are you pro or con 
pumpkin spice season as a flavor that is ubiquitous at this time of year. Whether or not it is 100 degrees outside or not, it is September 1st and therefore it is pumpkin spice season. I'm not a big fan of pumpkin spice, although I do I do have this recipe for the smoothie that has pumpkin spice in it. It tastes good, but I think it's a little overused. Cinnamon, I like things with cinnamon, like cinnamon apples and stuff like that, but the pumpkin spice, I'm not a big fan of. Mm-hmm. And, and you, the the, you, the chef, what do you think? <laughs> I'm kind of in the same boat. Like there are certain pumpkin things like pumpkin cheesecake. I like now that. Well. Yeah, I like pumpkin cheesecake. Yeah, yeah, it's good. But the it's pumpkin not- spice lattes and drinking it, I'm like... That's too much. Eh, it's a little much. Like I would rather, I mean, I like this time of the year because I can drink hot drinks without wanting to die <laughs> internally and externally from uh, heat exposure. Um, so... So do you guys grow pumpkins anywhere out in Nevada or oh, really there's pumpkins yeah. out there? There's, oh, okay. um, there's a, a really big orchard kind of out on the edge of the town called Gilcrease Orchard. And uh-huh. they grow, they grow really far more things than I ever thought you could grow in Las Vegas. Like they have uh-huh. apple orchards, they have pumpkin orchards, they really? have various summer squashes and vegetables. Like it's, well, it's it a, be too, too hot for all that. They, I mean, they make it work. They make uh-huh. it work. Interesting. The cool thing around here, which I haven't done in a while, but they have corn mazes, which is those are really fun. Mm -hmm. Where you know it's like usually you can go and pick a pumpkin and then you can do the corn maze and it's just it's crazy to try and find your way through the whole maze and those are really Mm -hmm. fun. They have apple cider donuts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. So our topic today is looking at exercise and how it plays into pregnancy and infertility because we have, and this is not exercise as a, you know, mechanism of infertility. We did that episode. I was, I want to say it's somewhere, you know, episode 40, 50, somewhere in there, but this is more just how it impacts the, the whole process. And when we're giving instructions, as you're going through something, what, what is our intent and what are we actually worried about? So let's, let's start with, just the, a brief overview of when you're in the diagnostic phase and when you come in for your first appointment and we're talking about nutrition and exercise, what are the, the big red flags that we're paying attention to? We do not want you training for a marathon in the fertility <laughs> therapy. Yeah. If it happens to be Nashville and it's about March and they're talking about how their periods have changed. My first question is, are you going to do the country music marathon in April? Oh yeah. I'm training for the country music marathon right now. So yeah, that's a big one. There's also a half Ironman that happens in, I think it's Nashville that um, uh, has, has a reputation for being one of the most user-friendly ones. And so I would not be surprised if you've got a lot of folks who want to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. So why do we not want you tra- uh, training for a marathon when you're in the midst of all this? So the, the, the scientific reason is because you can actually shut down the part of your brain that talks to your ovaries that makes them do what they need to do. All right. The, wh- the way I normally explain it to patients is think about it in caveman days. Okay. If you're having to exert so much energy to stay alive, maybe it's not the best time to make another little human. And that actually, that can go for men too. You know, I've had a few men that work out a whole bunch and they have that same kind of condition. Hypothalamic amenorrhea is the actual term that we use. But 
but basically it's just that you're exercising too much and you don't have enough caloric intake to to sustain yourself and a pregnancy basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what are um what are the things that you look out for when someone says that they are exercising all the time? Are there any specific exercises? And let's start with guys because that's that's kind of the easy, easy, obvious, low hanging fruit. But what when, when a guy tells you I exercise a lot, I didn't intend to do that, but it works well. Um, what's the low hanging fruit for male infertility when they're exercising a bunch? So we we want to avoid damage. And excessive to the low hanging the testicles, fruit. To the low hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so we think any- of like our, you know, our extreme cyclers, things like that. Guys Friction. who go into saunas and hot tubs after they're doing their exercises. You know, th- those are those are things that we want. I mean, that male genitalia was designed for a reason. Okay. Your testicles are outside your body. Our ovaries are inside our body. There are reasons for this. So the the testicles have to be protected and they have to stay cooler. Otherwise you're not going to have good, healthy sperm production. Okay. And are there any exercises that you hear women doing where it sets off a, I need to ask more questions about this? I think sometimes it's really interesting when I suspect that maybe somebody's extra exercising a bunch. It's always fascinating when I start asking them, well, well, tell me what you do and tell me how many times a week you do it and and tell me how intense your activity is. And I'm not, I don't do excessively intense activity now, but I know the one time I ran a half marathon, my goal was to run a nine minute mile. And that was pretty rough. I mean, I remember thinking, I mean, it, it was it was tough. So when I have patients that come in and go, well, I've kind of laid off and I'm only running an eight minute mile now. I was running seven and a half. I'm like, my gosh. And that to me, that says that's really intense exercise. So or, you know, so the amount of exercise can make a difference, too. If you're getting up in the morning and exercising before work and walking on the treadmill at lunchtime and then getting home and exercising again, that's just, that's probably too much. I mean, your body just needs a little bit of a rest and, and probably you need to eat a lot more calories because you're burning so many calories, you know, as these, as you do these activities. So I think the amount and the intensity are always tip offs. Yeah. I mean, think, think when people are doing things like orange theory, orange theory is a great option for some people, people are doing CrossFit, Again, great, great options, but making sure it is, it is moderate in intensity. And and sometimes I have patients who are like, give me a number, give me a number. And I'm like, I can't give you a number because quite honestly, moderate in intensity. If you take somebody who never exercises and they're like, okay, I'm going to do everything right. And I'm going to start exercising. Their moderate is going to be different than somebody who normally exercises and is moderate. So it it really is one of those, you need to have some self-awareness of what's happening in your body in that. And, you know, some of it depends on where you are. If you're in Texas or Las Vegas and you're exercising in July and August doing CrossFit on the side of the street on the asphalt, that I'm not going to be wild about because you're getting dehydrated. <laughs> you know, your your core body temperature is getting a, a lot higher versus if you're up in New England and, you know, it's a balmy 85 degrees, you know, that, that's going to be a little bit different situation. 
I think sometimes though it does help to try and like map out what they do. And like, if they're running seven minute miles, I'm like, okay, you can run miles, but run 10 minute miles. And they're like, 10 minute miles, you know, then that's like walking is to us probably. And so I try and say, you know, if you're working out six days a week, only work out four days a week. And when you work out, don't work out for an hour, work out for 30 minutes. Because I think sometimes, you know, people are very concrete and they want concrete solutions. And, you know, but ultimately I'm kind of like you, Susan, I say, you know, ultimately I can't tell you what, how you need to back off in order for your body to start working normally, but you just need to do less of what you're doing, less intensity and less amount of time doing the same activities, basically. And very rarely do we say you can't do anything because we all completely understand exercise is great for emotional health and well-being. Yes. And we don't want you to not have those endorphins. Okay. Sometimes (laughs) those endorphins are the only thing kind of holding you on at times. And and so we, we still want you to do that. But again, understanding that this is a point in your life that excess, excess in general and anything when you're trying to get pregnant is not good, but excess in exercise actually can be detrimental to our success. Well, and also, and also eat more. And I think sometimes you might need some assistance from like a nutritionist or something like we, the little clinic at Kroger's here has nutritionists. I think if you're doing that much exercise, it may not be the exercise as much as it is just that you're not eating as much as you should be eating um, to kind of make up for all the calories that you burn during the exercise. So I think it's a great idea to talk to a nutritionist and sort of get a plan for kind of what you're eating, what your caloric intake is, what your combination of protein and carbohydrates and fats are, and maybe you need to eat more fats and and protein than what you're eating um, to sustain your activity level. Mm -hmm. So once somebody starts into treatment, how, how do we advise them to exercise? And really, what are our underlying medical concerns with somebody exercising when they're in the midst of stimulation for an egg retrieval, for example? Right. So the biggest thing that we're concerned about is really the biggest thing. <laughs> um, your ovaries, your, are ovaries. Going to, your ovaries are going to get big. So realize that unstimulated ovaries are usually maybe about two by four centimeters. Okay. They're, they're moderately small little organs. Okay. Small line. Yes. Balls. Yeah, exactly. We are going to stimulate those so that your average <laughs> follicle is going to be the size of your ovary when you started. So if you have 10 or 20 or 30 follicles on an ovary, it can grow 10, 20, 30 times it normally is. And we know that ovaries that are greater than five centimeters, which often happens in a robust IVF stimulation have an increased risk of what we call ovarian torsion, where the ovary can actually twist upon itself, cut off its blood supply, cause severe pain. And that can actually be a surgical emergency where you have to have surgery to help hopefully untwist the ovary and and save it. And and so when we're, it can happen spontaneously, though it's rare, Okay. It's not something that we face every day. Thank goodness. Knock on wood. Yeah. Thank goodness. Um, but we, we know that activities where you are moving up and down, jumping, changing elevations quickly, you know, like jumping jacks, running, jumping on a trampoline, different things like that. Doing those, flips while, while swimming and turning directions. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's a good one. Um, those, those things can 
increase your risk of ovarian torsion. And, and like I said, we, we don't want one, we don't want you to have a surgical emergency. And two, we really don't want you to lose your ovary. Yeah. What's the other thing that we worry about? And this is more specifically after a retrieval. So after your ovary has been poked to drain the fluid, you know, if you're doing, if you're doing more intense exercise, what's the other thing that we worry about with dimmed ovaries post-retrieval? Hyperstimulation syndrome? So there's hyperstim, but that's not impacted by exercise too much. I'm more thinking about bleeding. And so if someone is um, doing a, a fair amount of exercise, which most people are not doing immediately after retrieval, but, but I definitely have some patients who are like, when can I go back? When can I go back? When can I go back? Um, when they are bouncing up and down, when they are doing all that post-retrieval, the other thing I worry about is bleeding. Because it just takes a slow bleed to make you extraordinarily uncomfortable. And if it picks up speed at all, then we have to go in surgically and make it stop bleeding. And that is extraordinarily difficult to do on stemmed ovaries because they are very fragile. And all of the tissue that you normally have to work with is different. And so it's really difficult to stop um, to stop that bleeding. And so that's the other part of the reason. We don't want you doing anything real intense. And, and intense exercise can, can include sex because all of your internal organs are highly likely to be jostled around. around. <laughs> and we don't, we don't want them to twist and we don't want them to bleed. How does exercise factor in for transfer? What do you guys tell your patients? Well, I mean, I feel like we're, if we're doing, if they're spending so much money and so much time and so much effort to really make sure that they have the best outcome possible. Um, generally, we tell them, uh, actually, the party line at National Fertility is no exercise really until after, you know, after a good ultrasound. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know if that's really the right answer, but I definitely say for, you know, a few weeks after the transfer, it's good just to take it easy. And that way, you don't have any regrets if, if something doesn't turn out correctly and if you didn't get pregnant, you don't look back and go, gosh, maybe if I hadn't gone on that extra run, maybe I, maybe the pregnancy would have implanted better. And so I think if for, if for nothing else, it feels like you're doing everything you can to really give the pregnancy a good place to implant. So I don't, I don't think we're quite as extreme. I generally, I usually do my embryo transfers on Thursdays. So I'm usually like, let's not do anything through the weekend. <laughs> um <laughs> And then if you want to start with something very mild, like walking or something like that, you can. Let's kind of keep it low and slow until pregnancy test. And then at pregnancy test, I generally think that moderate exercise is fine. What do you do, Carrie? So I, we tend to follow the same party line as Nashville. And part of the reason for that is, is like you said, Susan, I don't actually think that there are they're at higher risk of any problems once they, um, once the transfer has occurred and you're a couple of days out because implantation is either going to happen or, or it's not. Um, I definitely don't want people doing intense amounts of exercise because I think that can be detrimental. But part of the reason I tell people no exercise, and no sex is because the psychological component, it, that is the highest risk time between transfer. We do and when say you get wait until pregnancy test for sex. So yeah. We, we typically say, wait until you have a heartbeat. And the reasoning behind that is more, if you're going to have a miscarriage or if it's not going to work, that's the time when it is most likely to show up. And so if you have exercised and you go in a couple days later and all of a sudden there's no heartbeat, there's no growth, psychologically, oh my gosh, I caused that. And, and that's not good for, 
anybody. And so walking's always fine, but mm-hmm. um but it's it's more the psychological benefit of look, you don't want to go back and have any reason to blame yourself because that's that's how our patients think. Like they are type A really accomplished people and they're like, oh my God, I did this because I was too intense and I was too anxious to get back to doing XYZ. Um and so so that's actually more of the reason why I do it. I don't want I don't want you to go back and and think you caused anything that really truly you didn't. So let's move on to pregnancy itself. So once someone is pregnant, let's say that they are well and good into pregnancy. They are, you know, graduating from your clinic and everything is as solid as it can be. And at your last pregnancy ultrasounds, they're like, okay, I've been good. I've done absolutely everything (laughs) you told me. What, what can I do now? What are the rules? Because, and I noticed this is more actually spouses that are going like, she is dying to do X, Y, and Z, and I don't want her to, mm-hmm. and what are, what are the ground rules? And you as the physician are the arbiter of what's going to happen for the next, uh, 30 weeks or so. Don't do something that you could fall. Yeah. Like tennis, for example, like where you're changing position, tennis, that kind of horseback riding. Cycling on a regular cycle, like a stationary bicycle, I think is fine. But something Mm -hmm. where realize that as you get more and more pregnant, your center of gravity (laughs) obviously moves and you are, you are not as graceful of a creature as you were (laughs) pre-pregnant. None of us have been. Okay. And you are much more likely to fall. And so we don't want a fall to happen because once the uterus is outside of the pelvis, it's not protected from the fall. And we we don't want anything happen that's bad to you or the baby. Hiking or running in particular on uneven trails. Like I always tell people, um, make sure that you are running in a place where you know you know the landscape and it's really well lit because there are a ton of gravel trails around here. There are places where you can see that the pavement is uneven and I don't want you to trip and fall. I don't want you to take a spill for the, for all the reasons that Susan just said. So those are, those are the things local to here along with the bike riding that, you know, everybody runs, hikes or bikes. And I just, I don't want you to fall for no all skating. of those reasons. Yeah. yeah. No ice skating or roller skating, rollerblading. Um, skiing. No skiing. <laughs> snowboarding. None of. All of that stuff is bad and um, make sure that you're well supported. So there is something called relaxin that is very helpful in pregnancy because it helps all those muscles to relax, to accommodate your growing uterus and to accommodate that child coming out to the world. That also has an impact on your knees, on your feet, on um, all, all of your extensors. All your, so all your joints, all your joints. All your joints. So you, you are more prone to injury than the average person. And as any good good OBGYN would tell you, stay hydrated, particularly when you get into like this late second, early third trimester, mm-hmm. because if you're not hydrated um, and you release antidiuretic hormone, which is, happens when you're not hydrated, your body sort of, it attaches to the same receptors as oxytocin, which is a pregnancy hormone that puts you in labor. And so every single one of us that have done OBGYN residencies in the summertime, and probably you guys even in the wintertime, see people that are dehydrated that came into labor and delivery that were contracting. And the first thing that you do is hydrate them, give them IV fluids. And a lot of times that alone will stop the contraction. So really, really important when you do all these activities that 
that you stay hydrated, drink lots of water so that you won't go into labor, basically. So when you have someone who is a runner and who has been doing it for a long time prior to pregnancy, so I usually tell people no no major new exercises. Like once you are pregnant, now is not the time to say, hey, I'm going to train for my first half marathon. Yeah. Um, but if you are a steady runner, steady exerciser, <laughs> um, how do you guys give any particular heart rate um, recommendations? Like, do you tell them, get a Fitbit, get an Apple Watch, get something where you can monitor your heart rate as you're going through it? Um I just tell them to do moderate activity. I don't really give them a number. I would, if I had to give them a number, I would say definitely under 130 is what I would shoot for. Just kind of low, kind of, you know, still fast heart rate, but lower than what you normally have. I will say, as you were saying that, it made me think about my own experience because at the time when I was pregnant with my first child, I wasn't a huge runner, but I ran, I ran quite a bit. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to stay healthy. You know, studies show that women that are healthy and that exercise have a shorter labor and do better. So for about the first 18, 19 weeks of my pregnancy, I continued to run. But the reason I finally stopped was because, you know, if you think about the location of the uterus and you think about the location of the bladder and you think about the bladder going boom, boom, boom against your uterus, you get the idea of why I finally was like, okay, I can't keep doing this because it felt like I had to go to the bathroom because my uterus was just so, you know, pushed so hard against my bladder. So for those people who continue to run throughout their pregnancy, hats off to you. I just couldn't do it. Um, So that's the one thing I would say a lot of times it kind of works itself out because I just, I just couldn't continue on in my pregnancy. (laughs) I just want to mention the reason why we talk about heart rate is because baby heart rate is higher than yours. And the higher your heart rate goes, the higher the baby's heart rate goes. And so when, when, we, when we do give you these guidelines of 120, 130, wh- whatever your OB-GYN is going to tell you, the reason is mainly because your physiology of how your heart and your blood vessels are working is changing Okay, and it's changing to accommodate you actually increasing blood volume because you are going to lose blood at the time of delivery. Okay, and those changes, you know, as as we look at what baby's heart rates are during pregnancy, it can it it affects those things. Okay, and we don't want baby's heart rate to be at 200 or 250 because your heart rate's at 150, 170 or something like this. And so um, that that's the reason we, we give these types of guidelines is because your cardiac physiology is changing and it is directly related to what's happening with the baby as well. And one of the points I was going to make in terms of exercise, one of the better exercises is actually swimming because keeps your body cooler. Um, you, you know, you're, you're, you're not putting as much stress on your joints. So you don't run the risk of, you know, twisting your ankle or hurting your knee. Um, it's, it's, and it's a really just good form of activity. It's a good aerobic cardiovascular activity and, you know, certainly still need to stay hydrated and eat well. But I think that kind of accomplishes a lot of the different things that people want uh, to get out of exercise, even when they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. During my second pregnancy, I was much fitter than during my first and had gotten to a big discussion with my high-risk OB of, well, what can I do? Because I, I fully intended to run a half marathon when I was about 14 <laughs> weeks or so. Did you really? Wow. Uh-huh. And, and it was one of those like straight up, straight down a mountain type things. And so oh. 
um, I finally, I had to to go to the literature and I looked at the papers because that was the only way I was going to get him to agree to let me do what I wanted to do. And so it was, it was approximately 140 beats per minute where that, that was the deal we struck of, um, that's where we wanted to keep my heartbeat. And, and what I found is that during the first trimester, you know, first half of the second trimester, I could exercise and break a sweat and was doing fine. By the time I got mid second trimester, it, I would do much less and I would hit that same heartbeat. And so things started to, to calm down because they had to. And so, you know, and and other things that I was doing, like anything where I was laying on my back, by the time your uterus gets big, you can't do that because it's sitting on your major blood vessels. And if you're laying on your back, the same way, if you're laying on your back, when you're sleeping, it cuts off your blood supply and you feel like crap. Um, And so you have to, and so does your baby. (laughs) And so does your baby. And so, so you have to tilt to one side or the other. And, and I noticed that I was having to do more, you know, inclined push-ups and do things on an incline, do things on a tilt, um, always having a spotter when I was lifting, um, all of those things to make sure that I wasn't going to hurt me or the baby in the process. You said lifting, you were lifting. Oh yeah. Ah. It's the most satisfying thing, but you you have to pay attention because you're when you valsalva. So when you tighten your stomach muscles to brace yourself when you're going to do any of those movements, you're increasing your pressure on your abdomen, and so the likelihood of that causing any problems is minimal because most of the time when you're lifting, it's a very discrete motion and it's it's in and out. It's not constant. Um, but the things you have to pay attention to when you're lifting is if you drop one of those weights because something is heavier than you think it is you're much more likely to hit a belly that's in the way. Um, And so you want to make sure that you're spotted for anything big. And then now is not the time to be making as many gains as you can. Like you want to do weights that you know you can lift and maintain rather than trying to bulk or do anything Mm -hmm. along those lines. Because your muscles, your joints are much more likely to overextend, hyperflex, hyperextend. Mm -hmm. And... um, and, and cause issues. And you don't want to get injured because you're not really going to be able to take that Advil in pregnancy. And um, Tylenol just doesn't quite cut it. Um, so, so you have to be careful about some of those things and make sure that when you are exercising, now's not the time to make gains. Now is the time to maintain. maintain. Drink, yeah. drink, drink twice as much water, take rest, listen to your body. Um, and and just be cautious as you're moving forward. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing. You said, listen to your body. And that's kind of what I did with my mm-hmm. running. I'm like, you know, I just, this is just not good for me to keep doing this at this level of intensity. And it yeah. sounds like that's kind of what you did with your pregnancy too. So you you, you just got to listen to your body. Yeah, yeah. All right. Any last thoughts about exercise during fertility treatment, during pregnancy, any of the stuff that we haven't covered that we should have? I, I would just say great. that ex- exercise is good. I, we don't want to imply at all that exercise is bad. I would much rather have patients that are interested in exercise that we have to kind of, you know, decrease their level than patients who don't exercise at all and are heavier. Because it is true that if you're physically fit and you're in better shape, you do better in pregnancy and you do better in labor. So this is not in any way to discourage you from exercise. We like it, but just, you know, but just listen to your body and, and do what you can do and be don't smart. try and make gains. Be smart. Yeah. Never underestimate the power of walking and how good that that is as an exercise, especially when you are uh, preggers and feel like you're the size of a small house and (laughs) it it can make you feel better. You can still get gains, but there's less uh, injury involved in that. 
All right. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to turn in, tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe. Leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Hop on by, leave us a like, leave us a hello and say hi. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We also love episode ideas. So let us know what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.